0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Here we are on this beautiful, snowy winter day, recording another episode and looking around the table, and all three of us are drinking coffee from matching Thinkling's podcast mugs, it's a sight which to are available in the Faith Bookstore. For 25% off. 25% off. You heard it right there from the manager of the bookstore himself, so better get in there and buy some mugs. On this episode today, we're going to finish our Abolition of Man series. We're going to look at chapter three of Abolition of Man, but... Before we do that, we want to go through some emails. We have done this once before, and we want to be better at answering emails as they come in. So we're going to answer a few emails today. You guys okay with that?
1: Yes. That sounds great.
0: Okay. Our first email is from Caleb Harrier, and he, I'm not going to read the full email, but he sent us in a quote and he wants us to discuss it. The quote is from Charles Spurgeon, who, you know, you maybe you've heard of him. And uh, here's a quote. It says, read many good books, but swim in the Bible. The essence of the question is, how do we balance reading our Bible with reading non-Bible things? We talk about books all the time here on the podcast, so how do we strike that balance?
1: I think it has to do with what do you mean by swim? Is he saying that you need to extend your time a lot, like be immersed in it, or... I don't. I don't understand. I guess it would come down to why you're reading. So if you're reading the Bible to nourish yourself, then you need to read it enough to nourish yourself when you need nourishment. So I think it, I think of it like food. I don't eat one time on Sunday and eat like sixty thousand calories, so I've got enough food for the week. Number one, I'd be in pain for two days and probably need to go to the hospital. But number two, by the second half of the week, I'd be exhausted and have no calories. So. I would think that swimming I don't know, like if it's a consistency thing, then I would say regularly eating is probably good. But I don't know what I don't know what Spurgeon meant there in that quote. It's kinda of hard to understand. Like, what's he going for? And Spurgeon was a reader. He read a ton of stuff. And he had a photographic memory. In
2: lectures to my students, he has like a big bibliography that pastors like should buy commentaries and everything. So really it's kind of a wisdom thing that you need to be in the word and being in
1: the books. I think if you if if there's nourishment coming from non biblical sources, that's not nourishing you. And if that's where you're going for your nourishment, then you're probably eating like cotton candy all the time.
0: Yeah, and just one final thought there, Caleb. If uh, you swim for a while, you get uh, really pruny skin. So just be aware of that as you uh, seek to swim around a bit.
1: But, so, but if you're swimming in the Bible, wouldn't you want to be wrinkly? Then? Okay, that'd okay. be a good
0: pruny solely. Next skin. question. <laughs> okay, you want... email number two. <laughs> That's what happens when we don't plan out what we say on the Thinklings podcast. Anyway, email number two. This is from Nikki Carr, and she has a question about books that deal with the Old Testament, Mr. Tim Little. She says, I'm writing to ask if you have any recommendations on books that cover Old Testament timeline debates.
2: Yes. So a couple of books, Uh, Eugene Merrill's Kingdom of Priests would be at the top of my list. I really like his chronology. I think it's accurate. You can also consult uh, a history of Israel by Kaiser during the liter- literate ages. I think his is very helpful. Uh, it looks like in your message here that you're going you're gonna to potentially be going on an archaeological dig, which is awesome. Really excited for you um, to go on that. And it's just going to be dependent upon what you're digging up. If it's really, really old stuff, then they might start getting into ages like 6,000 BC or 7,000 BC. Merrill Rooker and Grassanti explain that Pre literate dates are extremely unreliable, and I would agree with that assessment. Final uh, statement would be Edwin Tile's The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings or something like that. That book really works through the chronology of Israel's kings. You have to understand that there's two beginnings to a, a year in the Jewish calendar there's the religious calendar in the spring and then the secular calendar in the fall. Which calendar were they using? You have co regencies. Tilley works through a lot of those issues, so that would be an excellent beginning resource. Merrill bigs up, builds upon Thiele's research.
1: In Western Civ, Nikki, we talk about Neolithic and Paleolithic and the different stone ages. I remember one of the things we talk about is what Dr. Lill just said, like, it would, preliterate means they don't write or read. And so all you have at that point to go off are what, pottery shards and... Like Age of the rocks and layouts carbon layouts of dating. buildings that they mm-hmm. find. So there's really no, it's, it's not like you're looking at that stuff saying, oh, this is from 6,000. There's no literary way to, no evidence that would really hold weight in court or something.
0: And one more email here. Let's do one more. This is from Pastor Aaron Mazzarella. He is writing in about the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, which we've mentioned on the podcast previously.
1: Such a good book.
0: It is a great book by Neil Postman. Way to go, Aaron. To capture the essence of his question is he brings up a TV show called The Chosen, which is, I think, a TV show devoted to the life of Christ. And there's this chapter in the book that's called The Age of Show Business. He's asking a question, is the TV show, which is made for entertainment purposes, something that's on like a a major TV type of a setting, does that do more harm than good entertaining people with the Bible, but maybe not Producing spiritual change, like getting into that idea of postman amusing ourselves to death, and how the medium of a message affects the message.:
2: It's interesting that he uses the term more harm than good. It's like there is some good that's being done because people are getting to know Jesus, but at the same time, there is harm because the way that they're getting to know Jesus is through a medium which God did not provide. Jesus is the word, as Stearns was saying off air, not the image and as the word, we should read about him. I have used the illustration in Daniel chapter 7. You have these visions of the... Daniel has this vision of beasts, and artists have created these renditions of the beasts, and they're pretty accurate. There's a little bit of error, at least in the one that I use, and I use it as an illustration to get people thinking that you are supposed to use your mind to imagine these beasts, and by writing or drawing out images of them, We're actually shortchanging you of the opportunity to use your imagination, which is a biblical thing. You need to learn to be a better imaginer. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have another vision of the throne room of God. That is one section where I don't use a visual. And I highlight this specifically, and I tell people, you need to think about this, imagine it for yourself. I'm not going to try to shortchange your imagination here. You need to learn to think and imagine I really like Postman's book and what he has to say there. I've taken it personally to heart and I've sought to be more intentional and careful with how I teach, portray truth.
1: I guess the only thought that I would add is it is intriguing when anytime you have some sort of a business venture and you have uh, Christianity mixed into it. I would even say, like, Bible publishers are, are captive to this. You have to sell your product and you have to do things to sell your product. And that's one thing when you're selling really nice bound editions of Bibles or you're coming up with new translations that are really good but slightly different so you can sell them and have your royalties or whatever. It's another thing when you're trying to convey biblical truth. And so I, I'm not saying it's wrong per se. I'm not disagreeing Dr. Little either. I'm just saying off the top of my head, if if someone's getting truth that doesn't have truth, I'm happy about that. But if someone's like, yeah, I don't want to read the Bible. I'm just going to watch the movies and that's good enough. That's definitely like that's
0: it kind of goes back to Caleb's email, where it's like a wisdom thing, like a balance thing. Oh. Like, you know, if, if that's becoming a substitute to you oh, yeah. of like natural, normal Bible study, you should probably not do it that much.
1: Well, <laughs> and I would say it's also or like... you
0: shouldn't be bathing in the chosen <laughs> TV show.
1: Like uh, <laughs> Swimming, we're that's also, the word be used. If someone uh, doesn't have any food and you have like a a little food packet that has like sustenance, like an emergency food packet that's good in that moment... But you don't want to live on that. You want to eat nutritious things. And so I don't want to like poo-poo the idea of trying to be evangelistic, but I'm with you, Dr. Little. I, I think that there's something about that that it's this. It's what appetite is it cultivating.
0: The big issue there is what, what becomes then the authority of the person partaking, which is the entertainment factor. You'd be but,
2: better served by not watching any of The Chosen or any TV Christian source whatever. And just be getting into the word, whereas books and Bible, okay, like with Spurgeon, you got to have both. Okay, you need to be doing. Did you say both. books and business, books and Bible, books and Bible? Ah, books, Bible, and business. That's what's really sad about Christianity. That's retail what Spurgeon
0: sometimes. said. Is that a direct oh. quote? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor
1: Little taking shots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we so, should really that should really be a full episode. Yeah,
0: we just need to come back to this another time and just do a, a big discussion on just that book. I mean, because
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, that's let's just leave it at that. It's too much. I got too many thoughts.
0: Are we ready to jump into the abolition of man?
1: Yes, do it. Okay,
0: let's segue to the abolition of man.
1: I'm imagining that little two wheeled thing that people ride on when you yep, said that. We just we jump on a off. segue. <laughs>
0: we're at the abolition of man, Charlie,
1: on the Segway. <laughs> yeah,
0: now we're there. Okay, we're there. So quick recap, chapter one. Uh, <laughs> men without chess. He's talking about emotions and sentiment and desire. He points out this teaching in an English textbook that is poor literature, instruction and even poorer philosophy about desires and values. And he gets to this idea of, if you undermine objective value, you're actually creating a man who doesn't have a chest. He doesn't understand things properly. He doesn't have properly ordered sentiments, and it just kind of goes awry. Chapter two, uh, I'm going to title it a different title than he gave it himself. (laughs) Uh, He talks about the debunkers who want to get rid of value and institute their own value. And I think what Lewis is trying to accomplish is how to debunk the debunker. You know, like if you want to explain away my values, then you don't get to have your own because that's inconsistent. You can't get rid of objective values and reinstate your own. And so he talks about that for a while. Pretty much he's giving another case for this tau, this system of objective values. Chapter three, he's going to then get into a discussion of like a pure relativist who says, no, I don't need objective values at all. It's not someone who is undermining objective value and then trying to reinstate their own value system. This is someone who says, nope, I don't need it at all. And this is actually where the title of the book comes in the abolition of man. And what happens when you fully get rid of desire? Like, I don't care at all. And we can do whatever we want with ourselves, with nature, we can conquer because we have this power. Well, what happens is man is just gone. (laughs) Uh, He comments about, uh, why do you call these men bad? Like, why are these men so bad? And Lewis's response Well, it's not so much that they're bad men, it's that they're not men at all when they've gotten rid of value. So that's where this idea of abolition of man comes in. And so we're going to do what we did last time. We're going to start kind of chronologically and work through some paragraphs. We're going to jump to paragraph seven, right, Tim?
2: Yes. Okay, take it away. Paragraph seven. I'm going to read a section. Hitherto, the plans of educationalists have achieved very little of what they attempted. And indeed, when we read them, how Plato would have every infant, quote, a bastard nursed in a bureau, and, uh, end quote, and Eliot would have the boy see no men before the age of seven, and after that, no woman, end quote. Okay, so he's explaining what educationalists throughout the ages have prescribed for child rearing. And how Locke wants children to have leaky shoes and no turn for poetry. We may well thank the beneficent obstinacy, of real mothers, real nurses, and above all, real children for preserving the human race in such sanity as it still possesses. So I just wanted to highlight that quote. First, what I found fascinating is that the conditioners of Lewis's day are not the first conditioners. He goes back throughout, even back to Plato. Powerful philosophers and men have sought to abolish man, what might we say, uh, for a long time, and they continue to do so in our age. And second, the, the child-rearing stems from real parents. I just thought that was really fascinating as well and something that we should consider. Whose responsibility is it to raise your child? Yours, not the conditioners, not the experts. It's your responsibility.
0: Actually, I think Lewis talks about this back in chapter two somewhere. It's not pulling in my mind, but to be fair to a lot of those previous, you know, quote-unquote conditioners, Many of them, like those rules that you just listed, they're actually trying to condition people within the Tao. So it's actually not necessarily a bad thing. They're not trying to get rid of objective values, especially those famous philosophers who would have agreed to objective value systems, in a sense. Stearns, you're kind of cringing. Well,
1: I mean, Plato, so in his Republic, he's he's trying to create this perfect city kind of thing. He gets to the point where he's okay lying to people to get them to do things so that it's good for the city. So I think like he does have a standard, but not within it, you're right. It is like it is. Well, it's it's. But before, it's not like a good thing.
0: <laughs> it's like before modernity, where truth is relative. They actually believe in truth.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, to say. No, that, that I would say yeah. yeah. There is there's some higher standard. They're just trying to do all the work.
0: Yeah. So we're not saying that all of the all of those people with those types of ideas to raise children are all bad, but the point being moms are better than scientists, right? So, (laughs) uh, unless, well, no, no, unless let's just move on from that. So what's the next paragraph? Stearns, are you picking us up there in P
1: eight? Yeah, we can do that. So man, this is where the book really picks up for me. I want to make a note about reading though. So I, this is my, oh man, I think this is my fifth time through and preparing for this episode. So last week we talked about guides. This week, the tip I want to give is I went through this slowly. I mean, it's probably took me a couple hours throughout the week to go through. I was surprised that I was seeing so many things, but it reminded me. Tim and I read Saving the Appearances on our Facebook feed. It popped up that it was like probably in the eleven year ago range, and
0: That's so a
1: wonderful book. I know you, you were. I mean, now you're. So you know. the author is Owen Barfield. Oh yeah, sorry, Owen Barfield's Saving the Appearances, and it was recommended to us by one of our teachers up at Central, Doctor Kevin Bowder. And so we had been trying to read it. It was required for one of us. Oh yeah, he, <laughs> that's right. You had to read it. I just thought, oh, this is good because been he recommended trying to get
0: <laughs> us to read it, and succeeded when he made me read it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh you gotta, you gotta love those prof- profs who assign books. Okay. Anyway, so we we're reading it, and man, it was hard. And I think we were all in. I don't know. I was talking to Dr. Bowder, and I said something about, man, we were trying to read this, but it, this thing is. It was hard to understand or something. I can't remember what I said, and it was probably not very eloquent. And Dr. Botter's kind of, in his Dr. Bader way, kind of went, mm, you know, Barfield's doesn't really get real profitable until about the third read. And, and I remember thinking, what? I got to read this three times? Which is definitely true, by the way. <laughs> I know. You're like the Barfield expert at the table, I think I've,
0: I think I've read Saving the Appearances th- three times.
1: See, I think I only made through part way once with you, and then you, me, Schrader, and Capa. We were
2: reading uh, Saving the Appearances on a drive back the, I from Central. That one, yeah. But
1: I think we also read, anyways, it doesn't matter. listener. my point is reading a book multiple times like this really is helpful. And so don't be afraid if you get through this and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Put it down for a couple years, pick it up, or put it up a couple months or whatever. So all that to say, In chapter 18, or in chapter 8, or paragraph 8. Whoa, sorry about that. We just went off the rails. We did. Paragraphs. It's it's all this extra coffee in me. Lots of coffee is a good thing. He talks about... It was good coffee. There's the old system of the Tao, and in the old system of the Tao, there are some things that the Tao prescribes to be done. When educators or teachers are trying to produce a kind of a student, like they not just knowing things, but the kind of student with a certain kind of character, they're actually going in line with what this Tao system is telling them. So they're trying to produce a certain kind of person, and the Tao is actually trying to say that's the end goal also. But inside of that, the motivation to do that is also prescribed by the Tao. Like, this is good, and so you ought to do that. So the point he makes is that teachers of the Tao are subject to the same standard as their students. And so these older teachers who followed this so-called Tao, as he's been calling it, were just passing on what they received. He says they did not cut man to some pattern that they had chosen. The idea is that they're following a pattern they had been given. But the new system doesn't see a Tao existing at all. What is Lewis talking about when he says the Tao? Traditional values or the conscience? He says now values can't be said to be morally right or wrong. So what's a value? It's a mere natural phenomena. So that means if you want your pupils to have a certain way of judging the world, like a certain value system, you have to pick that value system first and then prescribe it to the pupils. And he says the tau, whatever tau there is in that system, is the product of the educator, but the tau isn't the motivation any longer. So these conditioners are basically emancipated from all of this. He says it's one more part of nature which they have conquered. And here's the key point. Since the Tao is now debunked, they realize that when I'm telling people this is how you ought to live and this is how you ought not to live, they're producing a new conscience in their pupils, and they get to pick what kind of conscience that is. That is, they are outside and above is the word he uses. So what's intriguing is, what are they doing since, like, page one in this book? They're trying to tear down the conscience, but in the end, what do they end up doing? They set up their own new conscience that everyone has to follow. So this reminded me of this book, Animal Farm. (laughs) Have you read Animal Farm, either of you? I read Brave New World and it made me think of Brave New World. Okay. Charlie, have you read Animal Farm?
0: I have not.
1: Okay, I'm going to give but you But I'm the,
0: familiar with the concept. I'll give you
1: the quickest summary ever. So Animal Farm is actually a critique, I believe, of communism. So you have like the Russian Revolution and whatnot. So in Animal Farm, there's this and if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, okay? It's a farm and the pigs want to somehow get the farmer out because the farmer is just oppressive and he's telling them what to do and that's not right. Through various ways, the pigs rise up, and all the animals rise up, and they kick the farmer out. Well, now what are they going to do? Everyone's supposed to be free, right? You can do whatever you want. Well, it ends up that someone has to still lead. And so guess who leads? The pigs. And then there's this big fight, and the pigs get the other allies of the animals, and in the end, the pigs end up being the new farmer. And so what's interesting here is that the debunkers, are, the conditioners, are kicking out the conscience, the Tao. They're removing it, but they can't have no tau. You can't operate on no tau. And yeah. that's the key issue.
0: And Lewis, again, going back into chapter two, when they don't have the tau, they don't have objective values, well, their instinct will tell them that they have a <laughs> yeah. duty to the human race. And then Lewis picks up on that in chapter, yep. chapter, paragraph 10, and he's like, here's the deal. They don't need to have duty. Like they're confused if they're operating by duty because if they know what they're doing, if they're cognizant of the process they're in, they can just do away with duty. We don't have to have that anymore. Yep. Like we're now, we're conditioning what humanity is. Well, do we want to have a duty to the human race or not? Well, we are not bound by it. So the instinct, the reason, all of these things that they've previously used to, oh, this will be a good thing. It's logical. It's what we should do. It's instinctual. Well, you can just completely undo that. Because you're the maker
1: of the new system. It's a beautiful reductio ad absurdum on his part. So he sees their position and then he teases out where this thing goes. And I think this is a bigger reason that this book is so helpful. Lewis sees something. And I think if, any, if there's any value in reading Lewis's works, it's how he sees things. I don't know how he does it, but he's very perceptive. And what he's doing is He could his... have just been a really good guesser. He could. <laughs> can I get a... Are you gonna... It was horrendous. Thank you. Thank okay, you. I'm like, I rarely am on the same page as you, but I was waiting. Come on, Tim, give me a horrendous. That was horrendous. <laughs> it was.
0: <laughs> That's not true. He, he understood what was going on.
1: Yeah, and he, and he also had a photographic memory. He was really, really smart. But I think one of the values is that he sees an issue and he can see to the center of it and say, this is where it's wrong. On the face of this, these men come in and say, that's outmoded, that's wrong, that's inconsistent, and they critique the system. But then what are they putting up in place of it? The exact same thing. And I think this is hugely applicable to today's world. You have non-traditional, non-moral, outside-of-Christianity viewpoints that are critiquing the world. And I think that if you look at them for a period of time, you'll start to see these same issues.
0: Specifically in the book where he takes this discussion is one of the ways that man is now conquering nature is this idea of creating a new posterity. He's talking about eugenics. He's talking about contraception where man is exerting its power. Supposedly, man is exerting power over nature by being able to control the process of childbearing. But over time, what's actually happening is it's the undoing of man. So that's, that's kind of why a lot of this is framed in a posterity sense is because he's using like a eugenics or a contraceptive idea as his like test case. So Stearns, you wanted to talk about something in paragraph 12, right?
1: Yeah, he, okay, this is where I think it all ties, like or he pulls it all together, okay? So he says, he starts off paragraph 12 yet the conditioners will act. Now, what he's saying here is that the conditioners are trying to say we don't have objective value and we, we should not be living according to those things, and yet they still are going to have to have some standard by which they live. It reminds me of Blaise Pascal. So Blaise Pascal is very famous in the world of apologetics for his wager I think the wager has value, but only a specific kind of value. We talk about it in class. Um, but it's not just something you throw out and it proves God exists. It's uh, it's much more complicated than that. But what Pascal was good on is he realized when it comes to apologetics that every person has to answer the question, does God exist or does not God not exist? Now you may say, well, I don't know the answer to that question. He totally recognizes that. You might be Un- unsure. But he made this very perceptive point. You still have to live as though either he does or doesn't. There- there's no way to live like halfway. So it's kind of like this. It's an on-off switch. So you know you have switches in your house to turn your lights on. Sometimes you just it's a flick. It, you flip it up or down. It's like on or off. It's all or nothing. And that's the kind of decision you have to make when it comes to believing in God. When it comes you or you might say you don't know, but when you live your life practically, you have to choose, am I gonna live according to God's standards that I'm not sure if he exists, or am I not gonna live according to God's standards that he doesn't exist? I think sometimes people think it's like a dimmer switch where you can like slide the switch from like bright to dim, and you can live partly as though God exists. It's a very helpful concept for me, but I think I see that right here too. Lewis is saying The conditioners are trying to jettison all value statements so they can do whatever they want, but you can't live life like that. You have to have some standard that you hold yourself to and other people hold themselves to. So he says, what then remains to replace the Tao? He says, my point is that those who stand outside of all judgments of value cannot have any ground for preferring one of their own impulses to another, except for the emotional strength of the impulse. So the point is they have to live no matter what. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to judge? How are you going to make decisions? And at this point, he's like, all you're left with is your impulses. And this is Nietzsche's idea. Nietzsche like discards everything. And he's like, all you have left is your preference, your taste. You just live according to your taste. So even when they say there's no such thing as value, they have, they, there's still something they're going to use to live. And it ends up being their instincts or their feelings.
0: Twice in this chapter, he's going to give an illustration of that exact principle. There are these men who don't like traditional values because if they believed in those traditional values, they wouldn't get to do the things that they get to do. They wouldn't get to do things like eugenics or severe contraception where they're, you know, manipulating the posterity of the human race. So with with goodness and honesty and honor, you can't do those things to mankind. But what they like to do is they like to make man into animal, get rid of the value system, and as an animal, they get to conquer it just like everything else else they've conquered in nature. And he has an illustration to describe this, which I thought was really funny. I thought it was very Chesterton-like of him, like a very quippy, funny little reminder. And uh, this is in paragraph 16. It's also brought up in paragraph 25, I think. But this is what he says. This is one of... The many instances where to carry a principle to what seems its logical conclusion produces absurdity. That's mm, what you were just talking about. Beautiful. It is like the famous Irishman who found that a certain kind of stove reduced his fuel bill by half and thence concluded that two stoves of the same kind would enable him to warm his house with no fuel <laughs> at all. Isn't that so So funny? So here's, here's (laughs) this innovator who's like, no, 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 we don't need objective values. And he's like, well, if I get rid of some of the values, it's like, I'm getting half off the energy bill. I get to do these things. I really like that. I don't like paying big bills. So you know what? Why don't we just get rid of it all together? And then there's no bill. And that's, he's using the, the heating and the energy as the sense of the objective values. How stupid is that? If I'm like, you know what, if I get rid of my TV, I get $10 off of my energy bill. So why don't I just, you know, get rid of it all and I'll have no bills to pay. Won't that be great? And that's not how life works. And so, oh, this stove is going to reduce my, my energy uh, use. It's going to increase my efficiency. So I will have half of my energy bill. So I'm going to buy two stoves and my bill just goes away. I have all the heat and none of the bill. It's just, it's craziness. And that's what the innovator does with objective values. It's like, let's just get rid of them. And we can have everything we want and none of the things we don't want. In the classic platitude, you can have your cake and eat it too. And what does he say? No, that that's where if you take this principle and ride it out, let it die, you're crazy.
1: It's interesting too. I think this came up earlier, but what are they trying to do from like step one? They're trying to not trying to overcome nature. And their contention is that the Tao, the conscience is just some leftover from their evolution. And so they're saying, let's get rid of the entire like what you're saying, the entire objective value system. And so, but they still have to live some way. And so what are they going to follow? Their instincts, Charlie, what lives according to its instincts? Animals. Exactly. And so hence, man has been abolished.
2: In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have the command that Israel is supposed to hear the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this isn't some partial devotion to the Lord, it's 100% devotion to the Lord. Like what we were talking about, you can't just have God partway, you have to have him completely. And then he continues, you shall love the Lord your God. And we've discussed what that love is. It's something that's intellectual, that is not only intellectual, it's something that affects you your very heart and your being loves God, and you create that love by knowing who he is and learning who he is through his word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In every part of your body, you need to love the Lord. But then in verse 6, he uh, the Lord, Moses explains, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall Teach them. And the word for teach there is this repetitive motion teach. It's not something that's just like a professor's teaching, but it's how a parent teaches their child. Teach them diligently to your children. This is what the text says. And to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. There's four descriptions here. And these are not specific illustrations of when you need to do it when you sit, when you walk when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night. No, the point is that all the time. And what did we just talk about with Lewis? We have these conditioners and what are they doing? They're trying to create a new man. And what is the the combat? How do we fight this, um, this uh, propaganda from these conditioners by being the parent that we're supposed to be by living out this manhood that is described within the scriptures Mother, you are the, the conqueror of the conditioner. Father, you are the conqueror of the conditioner. By raising your children, not according to some worldly philosophy, but according to the written revelation of the word of God, you defeat the conqueror. And I think this ties in very nicely, even to Caleb's question earlier, when he discusses the book uh, the Bible, and then these other books. You need to swim in the word of God. This, the Bible is the worldview by which you filter all other books, including the books of these conditioners. This is what Deuteronomy even talks about. As the text continues in verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Everything you do and everything you see needs to be filtered through the word of God. The text continues, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your house needs to be governed by the word of God and everything that you see in society needs to be filtered through the word of God. Swim in the word of God. It is the standard of truth and defeat the conditioners and be a man.